Barely Research Facts is a fact-based podcast brought to you by Art Now Das, an experiential arts agency based out of Mumbai. Each week, we pick a word at random, dive into it and see what it brings to us. We are your hosts. My name is Ragini and this is Shar. Let's go. Hi and welcome back to another episode of Barely Research Facts. Hi guys. We're back with a new brand new word and the word is roof. Wow. I had some trouble That's with huge. this one and I did too. <laughs> God, I'm so glad I'm not the only one. Yeah, and I like the ones that are difficult to do because it makes you look harder for things and deeper for things. Yeah. Okay, so I'm going to jump in with first fact for this episode. So this was uh, while I was Googling and I was looking for stuff and I thought about the most famous roofs in the world. And there are a bunch, uh, you know, the Sydney Opera House being one of them. Mm. But the one that I sort of, that caught my attention was the roof of the Taj Mahal. Hmm. Now, I also, you know, normally when I'm researching stuff like this, and this is something I've realized about myself, like, recently, that because so much of the Indian stuff is something that I feel like, oh, you know, oh, I know this, or, oh, you know, of course, like, this, you know, everyone knows, because they've grown up on so much of this of this yeah. information, right? And so it feels almost like, oh, it's so common that everyone would know it. And, you know, I tend to, like, gravitate towards the things that I don't know, because it's also, like, it's also an exercise in information gathering, yeah, for us. But then I started reading up on this on the story on, about the Taj, and it was fascinating for one there's so much stuff about it that i did not know and uh, there's a really cool conspiracy theory so that just adds to the fun of it so the taj mahal is this enormous mausoleum that was built by the mughal emperor shah jahan it's in agra it's housed on the banks of the yamuna river and it was commissioned in 1632 by shah jahan as a tomb for his wife who had passed away in childbirth it's a beautiful beautiful building and you know everyone obviously knows what the taj mahal is and as of 1983 the taj is a world heritage site as designated by the unesco and it remains in it is one of the seven wonders of the world as well so i'm going to begin with just a little bit about the dome or like about the, the structure of the of the Taj. Now, the Taj Mahal is a complex that kind of incorporates multiple buildings. Mm. It has huge garden and then that sort of goes into this mausoleum with the domed roofs that are now famous all over the world. Yeah. The building is, is square and is made with what is called the nine-fold plan in place, which was popular in the Mughal style of architecture in the 16th and 17th century. Okay. And the idea is to have the eight paradises incorporated into the building surrounding the tomb or in, in the eight different rooms or areas. Mm. So there were there are four rooms, one in each corner, a central round chamber, and then an additional four areas. And so this becomes a nine-fold plan. Oh, okay. And... You know, while of course the inside of the Taj Mahal is beautiful and the and the inlay and the design work is just gorgeous. But the most recognizable feature of the Taj and the thing that we know it by is apart from its squarish structure, is these is the domes of the Taj, right? Yeah. And they're oh. these marble domes which are inlaid with lotus designs and patterns. The domed roof actually tops an octagonal chamber that is circular at the top area. The roof is a high drum and it is then topped with this bulbous dome. Mm. The dome measures about 26.5 meters and is 17.6 meters wide. And then the four smaller areas surrounding the domes are all shaped in a similar fashion. With the So those are the four domes that you actually get. So you can see the big domed roof and then there's yeah. the smaller bulbous domed roofs around it. Mm. On top of the dome is uh, a gilded finial, oh, sorry, a gilded finial that was made of, that is originally made of gold, but was eventually replaced by bronze in the 19th century and a crescent moon that has its points pointed to the sky, which is a common, so this is really nice because it's, it's the Islamic motif of the crescent moon. But the entire finial 
as a result of the manner in which it's constructed, has this trident-like appearance, which also mm-hmm. sort of pays homage to the Hindu elements, mm-hmm. you know, in the form of the trident. So that is the beautiful, the I mean, you know, the construction of the dome and the basic facts around it. Now that's kind of like, I mean, I don't know all of this because obviously a lot of it is kind of technical. But what I found really interesting is that according to myth, there is a story about how there is a hole in the roof of the Taj. Oh. Uh, for all of its beauty and all of its perfection, apparently the Taj has a leaky roof. Now, <laughs> so the Taj is leaking, the roof of the Taj is leaking, which may or may not be such a big shock because honestly, the building is 300 years old. It's maybe bound to leak at this point. Yeah. But the reason why this is surprising is because there is a report that sort of has taken into account a letter from the Prince Aurangzeb to who was Shah Jahan's son mm. to Shah Jahan. And in the letter he writes, the dome of the holy tomb leaked in two places towards the north during the rainy season. And so also the fair semi-domed arches. Many of the galleries on the second story, the four, the four smaller domes, the four northern compartments and the seven arched underground chambers which have developed cracks. So this means that this possibly was right from, you know, in the early years of the Taj. The Taj mm. has been leaking since then. And he says, during the rains last year, the terrace over the main dome also leaked in two or three places. So it's clearly multiple <laughs> leaky points in this building. And so the first question is, is the letter, you know, is the letter authentic? Is it credible? Mm. So the letter was published in the Muraka e Akbarabadi in 1931. Uh, a translation was published uh, by the ASI, which is the Archaeological Survey of India. And it was titled Ancient India. And after that, which was in 1946. And after that, the letter, fi- letter finds no mention in any of other major publication. It does, however, find some brief mentions in some other books here and there, but nothing yeah. like, it, no sort of scientific publication. But however, there are scattered references to this letter that kind of exist across like reports, studies all over for mm-hmm. an extended period of time. So it's fair to say that the letter possibly exists and is credible. Now, the few things that are odd about this is that the fact that the structure could be leaking so early or at the best a few years after its construction and continue to stand is slightly unlikely to, like it's hard to believe. And secondly, it appears that even in Aurangzeb's letter where he says, you know, it was leaking last year too. Yeah. Uh, it just seems like it is an ongoing phenomenon. And they seem to be sort of extensive and not localized, which means that the entire structure seems to be leaking. But the strangest bit is that in the letter, Aurangzeb says, the master builders are unable to suggest any measures of repairs to the main dome, which means that these master builders, were were they the original designers and builders of this monument, or were they people that they brought on since who were clueless about the original design and therefore did not know how to sort of solve the problem of this leaky dome. Mm. So two theories. One is that it could just be symptomatic of poor, poor design, poor maintenance, or just some kind of freak design fault. Mm-hmm. But what is really interesting is this little myth that goes about with it, is that if you've heard, you know, tales around the Taj Mahal, one of the tales that goes about is that Chaja ordered the hands yeah. cut and the eyes gouged of every worker who had worked on the Taj Mahal so they could never replicate it. Now, in all likelihood, this, there has been no proof found of this terrible deed. Yeah, no but, solid proof. But the story goes that when the rumor began to get spread across the, ro- the workers that this would possibly be was being considered, the workers made a hole in the roof in order to so that the roof would leak and eventually the Taj would not stand. So there is a hole in the roof, according to whatever I've read so far. I could be wrong if I am. Please do correct me. But the the story, the conspiracy theory around this is that the laborers created a hole in the roof 
so that they could exact revenge on Shah Jahan and the structure would not endure long because of it. That is the story of uh, the leaky dome of the Taj Mahal. Just to wrap this up, and not to do with the with the dome or the roof of the Taj Mahal, but just because I found these facts so interesting, I just have to rattle them off really quickly. So apparently the Taj Mahal is made of wood because in order for the marble to stay, stay strong, the wood at the bottom of the Taj Mahal absorbs the moisture from the Yamuna and it allows the marble to not corrode. And for me, all of this was like just absolutely fascinating because cool. I'm just thinking like, 1632, you know, the kind of architectural know-how to make this structure that has never been built before and then to kind of like have these little insights into being like, oh, you know, the whole structure is marble, but like this bit should be wood so that it would absorb the moisture mm-hmm. from this river that's going nearby. Yeah. Is kind of amazing. Everything in the Taj has been built in such a way that it would slide away from the tomb. So the Taj is for minarets mm. was strategically placed at the edge of the platform not as an artistic decision but because in the 17th century most people had not built huge buildings in order to safeguard the crypt of Mumtaz Mahal uh, the chief architect Ustad Lahori slightly slanted the towers in order to avoid avoid causing harm to the remainder of the Taj in case something were to happen Oh, so in him. case something would have fall, yeah, but like also like clever, right? Like just like, <laughs> and this is also another, this is another architectural like wonder. But uh, the Taj Mahal's fountains all work together, which means that each fountain has a tank beneath it that fills up at the same time. And when the pressure builds up, all of the fountains operate together without any need for machinery or motors. That's really cool. So you get like uniform and undiminished water pressure across the fountains all over the Taj. Cool. Uh, the Taj gets regular facials. I'm not kidding. <laughs> the Taj gets a regular lape of, which is like a mask of Multani Mitti, which is this Indian oh, clay thing that we use for our face yeah. uh, as a face pack. And the Taj gets that on a regular basis because the pollution from nearby tends to darken the color of the marble. So the Taj mm. gets regular facials. Did not know that. And apparently there is an optical trick that the makers of the Taj employed so that the Taj the closer you get to the gate, the taj, the smaller the Taj looks. And I love the line that goes with it because it basically, so the further away from the Taj you're getting, the bigger the Taj looks to you because of the way they've designed it. And uh, the guides at the Taj say that when you, when you, it's because when you leave, they want you to take the Taj with you in your heart. Oh, that is the story of the, of the roof and of the Taj Mahal by itself. Cute. I wanted to talk about another type of historic building. Nothing close to the Taj Mahal at all. But it's a it's a type of roofing that people still use here in the UK in some places, not predominantly, but in some places. And it's called a thatched roof. Now, when you think oh, about yeah. the phrase thatched roof, you're not, you know, it doesn't sound very, um, I don't know, it, it sounds just very basic. Basic B. Yeah, and it does sound like the opposite of the Taj Mahal for sure. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but... I've actually, you know, Dean and I have driven through the countryside over here and there are some houses. They're so striking. They're these old, very old, quaint looking cottages that have a very bulbousy thatched roof on top. And it looks, Mm. it just, you know, it just looks like an old sleepy, like English village. It gives it more of that character and charm. Now, I thought, okay, now when I look at a building like this, the first thing I think of is the people living in it are rich. A, because you know, preserved buildings in the UK like that come under conservation, they have to be maintained to such a degree of quality that you have to be, you know, well off to be able to maintain such a house. 
to the fact that yeah, yeah. you know like the the locks and the the latches and the type of glass used in some cases cases the type of wood used you know you're very restricted in the way that you can refurbish or redo these buildings because they want to preserve these old basically it's art mm. it's art used daily mm. so bronze age inhabitants of england wanted to roof their houses so they used whatever materials they had at hand they had these long stem plants that were around you know things like wheat straw and they just made bundles out of those and then piled them one on top of the other and created a thick roof and um, the purpose of the roof obviously was for protection yes but the purpose of using this material was that the rain because most of these plants were you know water i wouldn't say waterproof but maybe water resistant the water would sort of slough off the tops of the houses and it not only did that during the rain it kept the house cool during the summer and vice versa during the winter so like i said most of the thatched roof houses in britain they're more like a novelty and they're being preserved as a case of conservation and some of them are as far back in history as the 16th century so what people have found now obviously like i said you go out in the countryside it's so quaint it's so cute etc people who uh, buy these houses they buy them as novelties and they're usually well off so there's even a comment made by a master thatcher that's a thing a master thatcher who said that uh, thatch used to be a poor man's roof now it's a rich man's roof each of these thatched roofs have to be maintained so rigorously they have to be redone not taken apart and redone but more like just redone in layers every 20 to 25 years and yes they look cute but is it worth it is my question (laughs) because (laughs) now the first thing what would you say is a risk with a thatched roof the biggest risk uh animals in your roof <laughs> what <laughs> i mean i don't know i can just imagine a lot of like creepy crawlies hanging around inside of that roof that's well, my that's my impression of it yeah may, well no uh, i'll just nip that in okay, the bud no, no. <laughs> <laughs> i was hoping and expecting you to say rain or fire because one oh, of yeah, those two things yeah. are... oh fire yeah 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 okay i take that answer fire <laughs> Okay, good, good. Um, But uh, fire, it is a big concern, but apparently not as big a concern as you would think it would be. People have actually said that fire is no more frequent with thatched roofs than it is with normal ones. However, if you do start a fire, then it's a... a, Okay. (laughs) It's not more prone to catching on fire but if a fire did happen then it would spread quickly and chimneys have to be like properly maintained so it is a lot of work but you get a cute looking house in the end in the countryside which i think is worth it yeah <laughs> do you think so okay i'm all about the aesthetics i'm just like yeah. um, <laughs> looks nice it's worth it now another um factor that you have to take into account when you have a thatched roof because this has now become a podcast about people who want thatched roofs <laughs> mold can be a problem and it often needs to be stripped off so it takes some of the thatch roof like the thatch off and it reduces the lifetime of this this type of roof and apparently modern europe's cleaner air actually is responsible for a rise in mold on thatch so yay human beings for having cleaner air i guess (laughs) because there's not as many coal operating coal plants you know we burn more clean, clean fuel things like that it's actually affected the growth of mold which is, I mean, so strange. What a strange 
connection, but you know, I yeah. thought it was interesting. I didn't think it was too dry a topic. So I wanted to actually talk about the cost of thatching your roof. For an average size house, thatching your roof will cost you seven thousand pounds. Wow. It's, yeah. It looks pretty. So there are apparently um, 50,000 thatched buildings remaining in the UK and about 2,500 listed thatched buildings are in Dorset, which apparently there's a thatched roof around the corner every time you walk around any village in Dorset. Interestingly, they treat crimes against thatched roofs very seriously because an arsonist was jailed <laughs> for destroying one of UK's largest thatched roofs in 2017. He set a car on fire next to the house and um, it spread to the building and then quickly spread throughout the roof and I'm looking at pictures and they're so sad it just looks like a sad old brick house now but yeah he's in jail and he's uh, it's fine now it's the all is well with the world suffering the consequences of his actions yeah and also the most expensive thatched cottage cottage not house cottage is 5.25 million pounds and it's in Workshop. Wow. But yeah, that's the story of England's obsession with thatched roofs. Okay, so I wanted to talk about the roof of the world. Okay. I ran out of things to talk about about roofs <laughs> in general. Uh, <laughs> but also this was really interesting because the roof of the world is the Tibetan Plateau. Okay. Which is about 4,200 meters above sea level in a site that is now known as Chusang. Oh. So... This is a really interesting story that actually came about, which is a research study that talks about how the indigenous Tibetan population evolved to live on this strip of land. Okay. So now the thing is that because of the height of, you know, and the altitude at which the plateau is, obviously oxygen is rare. I mean, you know, it's, it's the air becomes thinner, so you're obviously struggling to breathe more. Yeah. But science, like what researchers have observed is that apparently the indigenous population of the Tibetan Plateau have inside of their bodies and their DNA an ancient sort of a trick to kind of surviving at this altitude in this thin air, but also being able to, but they're almost surviving you know, you imagine that the bodies have, would evolve to kind of suit that climate, right? So you get mm. changes to your to the way your body yeah. is shaped in order to be able to respond to the climates that you're living in. However, most of the population here seems to be remarkably similar to in structure to people who live closer to sea level, which is surprising. Okay. And so to give context, every other study, you know, so the the, stud, the people living in the Andean Altiplano, which extends from Peru into Bolivia, were studied. And what scientists noticed about them is that they sort of evolved into developing these barrel shaped chests mm. that allows them to increase the volume of each breath. Mm. And since about the late 1800s, scientists have also known that their blood is pumped full of red blood cells and hemoglobin. And therefore, so when the air is thin, the blood thickens to increase the amount of oxygen it can shepherd to the cells around the body. Mm. And so this seems to be the body's natural response to living on high altitude. Now, virtually all of the research in high altitude populations was focused in the Andes. And it was only in the late 1970s or the early 80s that this particular researcher by the name of Cynthia Bell, who was an anthropologist from the Case Western Reserve University in Ohio, began to travel to villages in Nepal and realized that Tibetans did not fit this theory. They lacked the barrel-shaped chest. They seemed to breathe at a faster rate. Mm. And second, in they, she found that they have surprisingly low hemoglobin levels, which is more at the range of people like you and me than mm. people who live at high altitudes. 
So it's super paradoxical because, and not to mention also potentially dangerous, because what having higher levels of hemoglobin does is that it's making your blood thicker. So you're able to absorb more oxygen. But if you don't have thicker blood, then you're sort of not absorbing enough oxygen. So how is the body even managing to stay alive? But what's surprising about this is that because they have evolved into in this particular manner, rather than the Andean population, there is a reduced wear and tear on the blood vessels. So if you have a high level of hemoglobin in your blood, your blood tends to be more viscous and that can have a lot of damaging effects on the body because you're basically, your body is basically pumping this thick concentrated liquid uh, and your heart is constantly in overdrive, right? Mm. Because the work is more. So most people who live for extended periods of their lives in high altitude areas, even if they were born there, tend to develop circulatory system illness, which is called chronic mountain sickness. There's no cure for it. The mm. worst effect, you know, you could die with it, but basically you need to be brought down to lower altitudes in order for your body to cope with what's happening to the it. effects of it living at, yeah, mm. at these high altitudes. And in the Andes, up to 18% of the population may develop CMS at some point in their lives. But on the Tibetan plateau, because the way their bodies have evolved, the number is rarely above 1%. So all of this is like super... It is interesting. You know, it reminds me of this, uh, when they started noticing a trend of Kenyans winning the Boston Marathon and other races, they did a study on Kenyan people. And it's similar to what you're saying now, where a combination of lifestyle and geographical location, because they're at a higher altitude, um, made them just better runners, just physiologically able to run better. So that's, it's interesting. I think this... It's also interesting to just see how two different communities in different parts of the world mm. at high altitudes have evolved biologically so differently. Yeah. <laughs> and apparently Tibetans were found to exhale more nitric oxide compared to people living in the Andes and mm. sea level. And originally described as a relaxation factor, the gas sort of leads to a widening of the blood cells in the lungs and around the body. And so with more space, the blood flow and the oxygen transport can kind of increase. Mm. So their bodies have sort of cleverly evolved in this way where they're much closer in functioning to normal human bodies. So there's reduced wear and tear on the body, but also it's doing exactly what it needs to do in order to survive in those altitudes. So the question then is, how did this happen? Like how do two groups of people sort of evolve in these diametrically different ways? And so they start thinking back to this. And now this is where it gets really interesting. It is based on uh, the study of the genomes. Mm. Uh, which is the gene, the DNA sequence of the of the individuals. Now, in 2010, by comparing the genomes of 30 Tibetan people to those from a Han Chinese population living in Beijing, researchers could identify those genes that were associated with living at a, at a high altitude. Okay. So in the space of two weeks in 2010, a total of three research groups each published a study that found a handful of genes that were markedly different between the two populations. And off the off note, there were two genes that stood out from the crowd and were already known to sort of modulate hemoglobin levels in the blood. So the good thing is that everyone is finding the same results in the same time. <laughs> so now on average, within the human population, there aren't any of your genetic differences sort of are at a real, at a complete surface level. So our hair is different. Our eyes look different. The color of our skin, mm-hmm. right? And those are the variants, the codes that kind of genetically just make us different from each other, but they're all really surface. Deep in our DNA, they're almost identical. So now in this, what they discovered was that after looking at the genes from this Tibetan, pop, from the genomes of this Tibetan population, not only was there a steep change to their genes from like regular population, but there was, it was also extremely unique. And they couldn't find anything like that sequence anywhere else. Mm. So, and so that gets really interesting, is that the eventual theory that has evolved from this and has 
now been proved is that the tibetans had inherited their genes from an another species so what they're not yeah so basically which i thought yeah i've like it, it was a tough one for me to like kind of understand but i'm kind of giving you the gist of it according to the researchers for people of asian ancestry they look to a species called the denisovans which is another branch of the human family tree like the neanderthals etc the denisovans are another branch of the human family tree and the results demonstrated that populations from papua new guinea australia and a few regions of southeast asia had inherited between 1 to 6% of their genomes from the denisovans cool yeah and so basically the reason why they have evolved differently is because they have literally evolved from another species and at some point in between 50000 to 30000 years ago some denisovans and some ancient ancestors of the tibetan and han chinese people had sort of reproduced merged their genomes and then shuffled their genes like a deck of cards and produced children who would grow up to have offspring of their own who would grow up with this really unique dna set that would allow them to function like absolute normal human beings without any evolution to their bodies but also be able to survive at those high temperatures at those like at those low temperatures sorry and high altitudes yeah over the next tens of thousands of years the gene seems to have given little benefit to the han chinese people unfortunately because i think they stayed close to the <laughs> earth and made no difference but it is found only in roughly 1% of the population all of those intrepid groups that kind of, like all of those groups that kind of moved into the tibetan plateau it helped make every breath easier it helped make their lives easier it had give them healthier lives mm. and all of it is because the the eventual understanding of this is that they just come from a different species and so like they're still studying it and they're still researching and there's much to like explore and learn but uh it's an it's an extremely interesting discovery i thought it was fascinating like it the, is i find it a bit difficult to wrap my head around but it's very interesting yeah like all of us come from something else and then these guys just evolved from like this superior thing and just became like a whole different version of us i guess and had a very specific positive <laughs> yeah now ragini what would you prefer slope proof flat proof uh slope proof okay a conservative i see <laughs> <laughs> so i was interested in well roofs in general in this episode okay. and i wanted to pick the driest Glad topics to there were so now that we've done with <laughs> thatching in england <laughs> i want to talk about sloped and flat roofs and how like each how each came about but i promise i will not drag it out more than it absolutely needs to be so okay. traditionally sloped roofs that was the norm like all the houses that you see except in deserts most of the houses that you see uh, in antiquity they were sloped because you know it helped get the rain off the uh, roof it reduced rain damage it um, you know helped the snow fall off the roof easier and other things like this now till this happened till the industrial revolution this was pretty much the norm so even if you look in Victorian England in um, you know even in busy town centers and things like that you'd see slope roofs then in the mid 1800s tar roofs were invented now the difference that this made was that tar roofs could be flat and they had to be flat in fact they were made of layers of felt and tar with a slight slope to a drain now they had to be flat because obviously the tar was applied by mop and so you know so that you wouldn't have tarry roads or tarry construction workers who were having tar dripped on their heads as they were working all these roofs were flat the advantages of the flat roofs were that they were cost saving um because 
just imagine the cost of building this extra two sloped bits where the only advantage really was that it it looked pretty great but also that you'd have a pretty unusable attic space. You'd be adding dozens of feet to the height of the building for not much return in that way. So hence flat. It'd be pretty. It is pretty. We know that by now we know that both of us go for pretty over (laughs) over expense. Functionality. Yeah. (laughs) One of the places that was really famous for this type of uh, flat roof everywhere you went was New York City. Uh, In addition to cost saving, flat roofs also provided space to hang laundry, just chill out, just go up there and sit, I guess. (laughs) And also to place water towers and air conditioners and things like that. And it had the added benefit that snow wouldn't drop onto the sidewalk. So, you know, um, early New Yorkers found this really beneficial. And so you'll see that even all of the really old, like now 100 year old buildings in New York were still flat at the top. And then slowly from this idea, it uh, became commonplace for big cities in the West to have flat roofs. Now, one interesting aside, apparently people used to build false fronts to disguise sloped roof houses as big city buildings so to make a big city to make a building look like oh i'm so cool i'm from you know the big city they'd have, <laughs> yeah they'd have this flat front so but then if you went on the side of the building it has the slopes. <laughs> which uh, was really cute and it also they could be indian that's could be clever could be Indian yeah and <laughs> apparently the um, added benefit was that the false front could be used to advertise businesses and things like that which you'd have limited oh, space clever. to do uh, in a in a sloped roof house so now by the 1920s flat roofs were well established as a symbol of modernity and so they became like you know synonymous with the modern style of architecture and um, what do you know people disagreed about it <laughs> What do you know? People like to argue. Uh, So I wanted to talk about this one particular instance in Berlin that I found where the shape of your roof or the kind of house that you built determined your politics. How you ask. Oh, okay. Yeah. So there's one street, there's a particular street in a sort of like sleepy villagey portion of Berlin called Zellendorf, where on one side of the street, the buildings have flat roofs. And on the other side of the street, they're pitched, which is sloped. So now this goes back to pre-war Germany in the 1920s, uh, pre-World War II, where there was a silent war being waged between modernists and conservatives in the form of these roofs. So flat roof advocates argued that they were less expensive to build and maintain in addition to fitting in with modernist ideas about minimalism and functionality like using roofs as terraces rather than wasting the space on top. But the sloped roofed partisans including many nationalists and if you know anything about Germany during this time, you know what kind of nationalism was taking place. They argued that something entirely different was happening, that flat roofs were a blight on traditional German architecture, or as one critic, Paul Schultz Nomberg wrote, immediately recognizable as the child of other skies and other blood. Now, wow. Yeah, he was being, this was subtle, by the way. There was another architect called Paul Bonatz, who for one said something reprehensible, but also said that flat roofs, he disagreed with flat roofs, obviously. And he said they bear more resemblance to a suburb of Jerusalem than to a group of homes in Stuttgart. So, okay. 
yeah so people started aligning on these two sides based on a little bit on politics and then you had like you know architects who just generally liked brutalist architecture or more modernist architecture but was sort of caught on in this weird political debate that was happening at the same time so for instance there was this road called Amfishtal the one I was talking about earlier flat roof residences were built on one side of the street they were part of a housing development by a leftist housing cooperative and they were built sometime between 1926 and 1932 and uh, guess what this leftist development was called <laughs> so strange but they took their name from a nearby tavern and it was called uncle tom's hoot or uncle tom's (laughs) cabin (laughs) oh yeah um and then it's a book book. yeah it's a book it's a very famous book about you know yeah but how did we just over yeah so they were called that that was a leftist uh, housing cooperative and then across the street was dag which is an acronym for something uh, unpronounceable by me, by this mere okay. mortal. <laughs> but it's uh, G-A-G-F-A-H. That was called, that was what the housing cooperative was called. And it was supported by conservative white collar unions. And they built their response in 1928. They called it, a com- they called this community Fishtalgrund, which consists of 30 buildings with 120 housing units and the roofs were sloped. So... What's interesting is that, yes, some people did take this as a very highly political debate, but also that, you know, the context within which it was set made it very easy to do that because the Nazis were coming to power not four or five years later and doing horrid, terrible things. Now, um, this drew a lot of media attention because they built it to draw media attention. Before residents moved in, Fishtalgrund, which is the conservative housing cooperative opened uh, first as an exhibition in September and October 1928 and um, the press immediately took to it they called it the Zellendorf roof war and it made a really good story at the end of the day and then or conversely a flat house roofing development built in Stuttgart attracted nearly 50,000 people during the exhibition so they were busy exhibiting houses <laughs> styles of architecture not four or five years before the first second world war how interesting yeah, I just... and all of it had yeah and it all... yeah, i would have never thought that it had this kind of like a, a that this would be the history to it like i would imagine some kind of functionality but like yeah wow the political implications of a roof of a house was not what <laughs> i was expecting yeah but yeah there were some people who were just architects they weren't necessarily you know politically motivated for instance um an architect the lead architect behind Fishtalgrund, heinrich tessenau publicly rejected the idea of a war he said here here as there this is essentially a serious search for the best architectural solutions sorry yeah, sorry heinrich <laughs> but you know other people thought differently <laughs> so that's the story of um the war of the roofs as it came to be known the war of the roofs i like that <laughs> okay so i'm gonna go into a different kind of well it's not really a roof but it's, it's a baby roof a called a roofie <laughs> i'm gonna talk about roofies though what really <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah Oh, okay. I thought that was like fully staged, but well done. Uh, okay, I am actually going to talk about roofies because I ran, like I said, I ran out of things to talk about roofs and I was finding other things to talk about. So I found some crazy stories about roofies and stories around roofies, not like 
all like not terrible ones because I wanted to be away from them because yeah. we've heard enough Thank of those. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> but apparently uh, there was a restaurant in Staten Island in New York that thought that calling their renaming a dessert drink and calling it the Rufi Colada was a good idea. Oh my God. Uh, yeah. Needless to say they have since received tons of backlash and have changed the name but they did put out a disclaimer on their Facebook page saying that uh, for the record just so you know that there aren't any day trip drugs in the dessert oh god if you ever have to make that kind of statement in public there's like yeah just never just fall like yeah, like bad bad ideas sometimes I just look at these things and I'm like who who approved <laughs> who came up what was that room like they need to give like, up their jobs oh, and become master thatchers I've heard their apprenticeships are very lucrative <laughs> So yeah, so they basically got burned for good reason. Mm, However, in California, there were these three women uh, who were sitting at a restaurant. This is really cool. Kind of like it's a cool story. But they're sitting at this restaurant at Santa Monica. And, you know, there's this young girl who's sitting on a table opposite them. And she gets up and she goes to the washroom. And one of the women sees a man fumbling with his date's glass at the table and reaching for something. And then she's looking at him and then she, she can see him like opposite her table. And he's basically, she's seeing something fall from his hand into the glass. And she realizes that he's about to drug this girl. Oh, God. So they walk into the bathroom and she goes up to the girl and she's like, look, I don't want to freak you out. But I just saw the guy you're with and he put something in your drink. And, you know, do you, how, like, do you know him? And this is where it gets really creepy because she's like, oh, my God, he's one of my best friends. I've been working with him for a year. <gasps> Ew, never trust anybody again. God, terrible, right? And then, so basically the woman on the date, she comes back, she returns to her table. She acts like, she's trying to act like nothing's happened. In the meantime, these three amazing women alert the restaurant manager who then talks to security and they check the video and they confirm the women's story. <gasps> and so, and then right after that, the cops came and took the man away. And later, the Santa Monica Police Department confirmed that the man had been arrested with multiple vials of a clear substance on him that has not yet been identified. And the three women in question are Sonia Ulrich, Marla Salzer, and Monica Kenyon were the three women. And they have this amazingly cute meme that's going around with the three of them standing in these Charlie Angel-style poses. And (laughs) uh, the meme reads, don't roofie someone on our watch. (laughs) Oh, I love that. It was a cool, yeah, it was a cool story. But, uh, but yeah, be careful, girls. In the same breath, uh, apparently there is a, a special cup that is being developed that uh, detects roofies in your drink. So, wow. I don't know if that's still out or not, but when that is, it might be a good buy. Maybe. Oh, uh, yeah. But those are three uh, cool little news bits from the world of what's going on in, in, the, in the world of roofies. <laughs> In the roofy ingesting world. In, oh, in speaking of ingestion. <laughs> yeah, okay. I wanted to talk about the roof of our mouth. Have you? Oh, okay. Yeah, I mean, I found it interesting. Again, I feel like I've been very defensive <laughs> of the choices I've made today in um, my choices of topic. I think roof of, of roof of the mouth is clever. Oh, fab. That's great. Because we're going to okay. talk about it. Yeah. So... <laughs> okay. uh, one of the things that I first wanted to talk about was um, this Reddit post that I came across. So let me start by just referencing this Reddit thread where someone asked, do you have taste buds on the roof of your mouth? With a very <laughs> with a very pertinent answer in the form of a question, which was, how high are you? But I am going to answer the question for this answer-seeking Redditor. 
the answer is yes you sort of do have taste buds all over your mouth uh it's not just your tongue you have them some in your cheeks some in your soft palate which is that fleshy bit at the very end of the roof of your mouth so if you run your tongue up the roof of your mouth backwards to your towards your throat it's that fleshy bit that you can just feel before you know your tongue is just like please you stop get- torturing me okay. <laughs> interestingly uh, i did bring up an interesting topic about gag reflex while stood next to my husband and three of my uncles Don't do that you guys. So coming back to the roof of your mouth, it's a very interesting portion of your anatomy. The roof of the mouth, the proper name for it is called the palate. And ages ago, they used to think that that's where the taste buds were and that's why it's called, you know, when you have um when you're talking about taste, you say that oh, it's not part of my palate or that's why you refer to a set of tastes as, you know, your palate because that's where people thought the taste buds were. But the tongue has been obviously named the big kahuna of the taste buds that's where you taste most of the stuff but you also have it in your soft palate in your cheeks in your tonsils no thank you i don't want taste buds in my tonsils okay. would you want taste buds in your tonsils well it's a, i don't it's, think we have a choice it's immaterial you know. yeah you you you've got them <laughs> Having given you that surface level information about the palate and about the hard palate and the soft palate etc did you know that there's a phobia associated with the hard palate and peanut butter I did not but I can understand it so arachnophobia is defined as the fear of peanut butter sticking to the roof of your mouth yeah i i completely get it I, you i get it too i don't want anything stuck to the roof of my mouth it's the most uncomfortable <laughs> thing in the world Plus another interesting aspect of the roof of your mouth is that it's really important in phonetics. So if you were making like Dean and I have this discussion because obviously he's used to using his tongue in, you know, when verbalizing things in a certain way. So if I say to him, can you say, you know, my mom's name, Sujata, he'll say Sujata. Like he doesn't understand uh, phonetically how to make a soft T sound. So you make the sound ragini. Sujata Yeah so that the uh, that soft t is outside dean's lexicon of of being able to do so the hard palate is actually where you make these sounds and your placement of your tongue and which part of your tongue against the roof of your mouth makes the difference so t d j these are all sounds that you make using certain parts of your tongue against certain parts of the roof of your mouth wow Yeah so in in Hindi we also have a r sound which is like a rolling of the back of your tongue against the roof of your mouth again very difficult for non hindi speakers to do unless it's part of the language that you speak if you can think of any other sounds or words that are tricky to say and that involve using your hard palate comment them on our instagram post about this episode <laughs> yeah cuz we like being geeky like be, that. i'm going to be doing this all day now i'm just going to be like the the <laughs> and then malayalis which is where i'm from have even worse which is yeah yeah <laughs> yeah i can't do that either but yeah so there's a little uh, bit about okay, the hard so palate have... and the importance of the hard palate and the roof of your mouth <laughs> yeah so we're going to go and spend uh, a very productive day now mm-hmm. pronouncing the different words that we know yeah making sounds at each other <laughs> Yeah and we will see you next week with another word and another short episode see you
Okay, that's it for today. The episode you just heard was edited by Mohit Chandelia. Music for the episode is by Charita Arora. If you'd like to reach out to us about the podcast, the episode, or you just want to say hi in general, we're on Instagram as Barely Research Facts. You could also come to the website at www.arnadas.in. If you like the podcast, review, subscribe, and please share it with other podcast lovers in your circle. It would mean so much to us. Until next time, bye.